that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Valentine. Well, good morning again. If you're just joining us this morning, uh, or visiting today, or new to our church, we're just finishing today a short three-week topical series in the book of Ephesians that we're calling Life Together. Life Together, the title's taken from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic work, uh, Exploration of Christian Community. We began, by, we began by looking at who we are as a church, the people with the goal of answering questions like, what does it look like to live in a Christian community? The church here, Bethany Church, and this, this local expression here. Last week we summarized week one this way. We're a people who were once far off from God and each other, who have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus to form a new reconciled family, living out of a new gospel unified culture by the power of the Spirit. It was week one. We talked about how God is building a new people called the church through breaking down hostilities and by reconciling through Christ humanity to God and to each other, which led uh, to week two, where we uh, jumped into chapter four after hearing in chapter three that the church is the place where we are to manifest God's wisdom to the world, that big calling. And then we unpacked, began chapter four last week. Here's how we summarized it, uh, this one. We are eager to maintain 
eager to maintain the unity that God is working in us, pursuing conduct that promotes unity and using our spiritual gifts for every member ministry to build up the body of Christ in maturity and love. So there it is. That brings you up to today. If you missed the first two weeks, you're golden. We just brought you right back up to speed. There we are. We're wrapping up chapter 4 of Ephesians this week. We move from the call to unity to the call to purity. That's where we're headed today. Paul's desire is that we would walk in a manner, chapter 4, verse 1 said, worthy of the calling to which you've been called. But what does that look like? What does it look like to walk in that way? Well, what we've really been looking at is this unity that's brought about in the church by integrating these three things. We're going to talk about a bunch today, but here they are. Let's show them. Our position, our belief, our behavior. Our position, our belief, our behavior. Position, who we are as Christians and what we believe and our behavior, they're, inter, they're intertwined, or you might say our being, our thought, and our action. They all go together in the Christian life. You can't separate them. They always go together. You shouldn't separate them. Our position is what's happened to us, who we are as believers, our identity, what's happened to us, drives what we believe, and it's connected to what we believe about ourselves and about the world, which in turn drives our behavior, how we act, how we live in the world. And our passage today synthesizes, puts all three of these together, our position, who we are, our identity, our belief, and our behavior. Today we're going to look at the theology of two different ways to walk and the fruit of two different lives. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got your Bible or smartphone or tablet open Ephesians 4. I tried to make, I thought, let's make the outline with the most fill-ins ever today. So they're there. I don't know how it just happened that way. We're going to go through, quick through a lot of these slides today, but let's, let's go ahead and jump in today. As we're going to look first at, at the first theology of a life that is really far from God. Those who haven't been reconciled to God. Here it is. First, our first life, our first walk, our first path, whatever you want to call it. Humanity apart from God walks a downward spiral of evil, Paul wants us to see in this passage. He gives us a startling description, really. A startling description of those who are not following Jesus. He starts in the negative, not following Jesus. And it's an intentionally sharp contrast. Intentionally sharp contrast, putting these two up next to each other so that we'll see something, a contrast. And he says it with the authority of the Lord. Look at verse 17. Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord. There's a strong language. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You see, he sets up two ways to live right there. Two different lives, two ways to live. That, that's it. Two ways. Those who are with God, this new people that we've been talking about, new creations that God is making, the Ephesian Christians that he's addressing, that he's writing to, and the other group, everyone else. Everyone else. He uses this catch-all term, Gentiles, to describe the rest of humanity not following God. He sets up for us two paths, two lives, not three, not four, not 50, not a million, two in this passage with that term Gentiles. And when he does it, it's like a downward spiral, like a descending staircase. 
Here's what, how he describes them. They're all four there for you. The steps that go down, hard heart, ignorance, alienation, and increasing sin. They're strong words, aren't they? This is the Apostle Paul describing humanity apart from God, this downward, and I've kind of made them like steps even there to see that, that mental picture in your, your mind. He describes them, or all of us, apart from Christ, as having dark minds. He goes after the intellectual, your thinking life, your thoughts, your beliefs. Now, we're more than thinking beings, aren't we? You're more than just a mind. You're more than just your thoughts. But we can't escape that our thoughts, our our beliefs, they drive our behavior. They drive how you respond to any given situation, what you believe. And when you act according to that belief, you're placing faith and trust in that to step out according to what you believe. But we can see we're more than thinking being because he roots humanity's problems in the first one right there, our hearts. That's the problem of humanity. It begins in our hearts. And actually, the two go hand in hand as our heart contains our ability to think, too. They go hand in hand. That's what Jesus saw in humanity. Remember in the Gospel of Mark, he walked in the synagogue, and they were looking to accuse him, Mark records, and this is what he said to him. He looked around at them, you'll see it popping up, with anger, grieved at what? The hardness of the heart, of their hearts. This hardness of heart that's described here, it's like a, uh, a, a willful ignorance almost. A, a stubborn refusal to consider Jesus Christ, to consider his claims, to consider who he is. It's a, it's a refusal to see the light that is available right there and in humanity and in the world. I, it made me think of John's gospel this week as he began his gospel. It's uh, in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Do you remember? Jesus said this, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Truth, light, and the person of Jesus. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. This is the words of Jesus. And does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Light's available, Jesus says. Truth is to be found. Jesus has come and revealed it. But a hard heart runs from the light, Jesus says. And and he goes so far as to say, hates the light. And so Paul describes for us the life of the hard-hearted, which make no mistake, that's all of us before the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart. That's everyone born into humanity. Well, if the foundation is a hard heart, or because of a hard heart, you might say Paul is saying, because of a hard heart, these things happen. Downward steps are inevitable. A path of, of evil, he even calls it. Because of the hard heart, the mind is darkened, he says, and understanding, and so therefore there's an increasing ignorance, our second step, downward. And because of that, that alienation, that pushing away from God, an alienation does increase from God. A separation that Paul even talked about in Ephesians, the hostility has been broken down. But here it's increasing, an alienation. And because of that ignorance, verse 18 reads, there's an increasing callousness that leads to increasing sin. 
In other words, a hard heart leads to a dark mind, which leads to a dead soul, which leads to an increasingly sinful life. I told you it's pretty, pretty uh, strong, isn't it? You might say, that, that sounds a bit harsh. That sounds a, you know, a bit kind of judgmental and condemning of Paul. You might say that. You might hear that saying, go, I just knew it. You know, those, those Christian people love this, this harsh language. I, you know, maybe you're today thinking that. It's so judgmental and condemning. How, you know, is Paul really, does he really believe that about humanity? Does he really believe that? Paul's saying that everyone apart from Jesus is on this downward spiral? That same John 3 passage I just read from, where Jesus was talking with Nicodemus about the light and humanity running from the light and hating the light, it says that Jesus didn't come, even come to condemn the world. Jesus says that. But why? Let's go back to Jesus' words. Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. The same John passage says, yes, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because that's just the state of it apart from Christ. That's the state of it. It's, it's a theology of, of disbelief is what Paul is describing here. And yes, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because humanity is condemned already, he says. Two ways. Apart from Jesus, this is where you stand. And Paul's making that really what he's doing. He's not being judgmenting or, or condemning. He's actually just stating reality. The reality that his Savior Jesus said to Nicodemus. He's just really stating the way things are as he describes this downward staircase. Remember last week we talked about being eager to maintain unity. Eager, that eagerness to maintain it. You, you have to make every effort we talked about because you don't drift towards holiness, do you? You, you don't drift towards unity. You, you don't drift towards truth. Which way do you drift? Away. That's this downward step. You drift away from those things. Paul's showing us the drift. He's showing us the drift, or, or downward march, you might say, away from God. Well, you might still think, he's just being dramatic, maybe. Uh, hyp uh, hyperbole, I think, is that the word? Exaggerating things for an effect. I mean, I, I don't see people vocalizing hatred for God or the light and I mean, I know good people, and I know you do too. They aren't ignorant. They don't seem ignorant or increasing in sin all the time. And first I would say, yes, not everyone in the world, us included, is as evil as we could be. And for that, we thank God, don't we? It's called his common grace. He restrains people from being as evil as they could be. The most evil person could have done one more evil act, right? He's restraining. So I would say true, yes. But second, I would say this. Evil's not just something we see, is it? Or actions or, or, or words that we can watch or that we can observe. Where does Paul say it comes from? That's the key. Our hearts. Our hearts. The unseen sometimes. What we don't know. What we can't see in others. And if that's the case, I think he's hit it spot on there comes from our hearts. 
as I was thinking this week of this downward spiral of steps, the image that kept coming through my mind this week was of, have you ever seen M.C. Escher's lithograph? It's like the, the wacky stairs one. Where Take a look at it for a minute. You got different stairs and different people. It's kind of a mind trick, isn't it? You've probably seen it before. He does this kind of funky paintings. The, these, these steps that go to nowhere, you see them and directions are sort of crossing and confusing and some people look to be walking up and some look to be walking down or above and below. There's no clear direction, is there? And you look at that. There's no clear direction. Do you know what the title of this piece is? Anybody know? Relativism. Relative. Where, where is it going, you know? It's a picture uh, of humanity, as I saw it this week, running from God, trying one staircase after another, trying another one to find fulfillment, to find purpose and meaning, that identity, that purpose, career, family, sex, alcohol, hobbies, vacationing, new cars, food, whatever it is. Where does it lead? Where does it go? I don't know. One giant circle, it looks like there. No real direction. Relatives, the title of the piece. We'll try another staircase then. See, see where that one goes. It's path number one of the two ways to live. And that picture kept popping up in my mind this week. Humanity, apart from God, is just trying a bunch of staircases. Just trying. But what about those in the body? What about the church? That's the second one. What about those who followed Christ? If he's wanting to contrast these very dramatically, what about those who uh, live our life together in this local body? Let's look at it. Our life together is renewal, we're calling it, in the school of Christ. Our life together is different, and I hope we see it today. It's different. Our life together is renewal in the school of Christ. Let's talk about this other walk. The, the disciple's life, you might call it. What should it look like? You've probably um, heard it said that those who um, go through hard times in life, those who learn life wisdom from, uh, not from a formal education, but from going through real-life challenges, street smarts, you know, you know the phrase, they've been to the school of, do you know it? Hard knocks. The school of hard knocks. You spend time getting beat up a little bit by life. Some, some wisdom is, is imparted to us. Well, here in verses 20 to 24, Paul says, everything I just described about the hard-hearted, the far from God, this is not your way. This is not your path. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, but, but that's not the way you learned in Christ. That's not the way you learned in Jesus. It, it's very emphatic, his words. It's like, no, 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 not you. But as for you, your way is entirely different. That's what Paul's saying. Do you feel that when you look at your life? I had to think about that this week for myself. When I look at my life and I think about others I know, would someone be able to look at me and say, to come to that conclusion, what path are you on? Like, where are you headed? Because it just seems different than the general path of humanity. Well, Paul wants to show us how to do this together. 
And he gives us the school of Christ, not the school of hard knocks, the school of, of Christ. Over against that whole way of life he just described, he now puts forward this, you might call a spiritual life curriculum for us. A short little quick class in the school of Christ. Here's the first thing he says about this. He says, you've learned, you've heard, you've been taught Christ. Yes, here is one path, but not you. You have learned and heard and taught Christ. It's like he's giving us the three, what were they, the three R's? Reading and writing and arithmetic. That's it, three R's. Reading, writing, arithmetic. They don't all start with R. But there, I guess, is because there's an R in them, I guess. He's, he's giving us, you learned, you've heard, you've been taught Christ. Look at verse 20 with me, the second, uh, into 21. We'll read it again, it's a short one. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you've heard about him, we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He says, you learned Jesus. You heard Jesus, even. You were taught Christ, he says. It's instruction in Christ he's talking about. He's talking about looking to the scriptures for Jesus, finding him there. This being a totally different path than those who flee and run from the light. Is you learned. I mean, even Jesus did this himself. Do you remember that, that time on the road to Emmaus? It was after his resurrection. And these two followers come along and are with him. And they knew him, but they don't recognize him in that moment. A divine cover over their eyes, maybe. They didn't recognize him. And, and he appears to the followers, and he sits down with them. And what does he do? Luke records this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There he is with these disciples. He sits down. And when you hear of Moses and the prophets, you're, here, you're meant to hear all scripture. All scripture. Jesus sits down and goes, let me show you me. Imagine that class. That's, that's, the, that's the master class of spirituality right there. Jesus sitting down, let me show you me. This is what we do. We learn Christ, who he is, what he's done in the gospel, what he expects of us today, we're going to talk about, as Lord of our lives, his moral demands on us from all scripture. That's what we do, Paul says. This is you, but not you. This is you. We learn Christ. We fill our minds and our hearts with the truth. And, and this is why Sunday School Teacher Appreciation Day matters and why there's no better time to do it than on this Sunday. Let us never take for granted what happens down that hall with our teachers. I, I kind of said it, but we, sort of, we see kind of cute kids walking down the aisles, and they are, and that's great. But do we realize when they walk down, as I, was, I said earlier, they're walking off to battle. There is a battle taking place in that hallway right now. A spiritual battle for the hearts and minds and allegiances of our children. It's not just Sunday school. It's tactical, spiritual warfare that your Sunday school teachers are standing in front of on the front lines with your kids, our grandkids. Learning, hearing, the truth in Christ. And, and we as parents and grandparents, and we have a responsibility in the church and, and in our homes to do this with our kids. But so do we. 
if we don't fill our minds first with Christ, we're never going to pass it on to anybody else. To fill our minds with Christ, because why? Verse 21 says it. What does he say? Truth is in Jesus. That's why. Truth is in Jesus. So why, where else are you going to go? Peter said, where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Truth is in Jesus. So what's that truth? What's that truth that sets us out on a different path? If truth is in him, and truth is in the gospel, and truth is in what he's done, what is it? Verses 22, 24 lay it out. Here's the first thing it is. We, we put off the old self as new creatures. So we hear in Christ, we grow in Christ, we learn Christ, and we put off the old self as new creatures. Verse 22 says that. Truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. If that's the very first thing, we must see and realize what happened at your conversion. If you're a follower of Jesus now, what happened at your conversion when you were born again is another word. That's what John 3, that passage we've quoted from today, that's what the whole passage is about, isn't it? Something really radical happened. Something extreme, something brand new and fresh. You were made into a new creature. A new creature. I love spicy food. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. And so that means I love sriracha. Oh, yeah, I hear somebody. Oh, yeah, I got a verbal on that one. Oh, yeah. Yes. I love sriracha. So I add it to all kinds of things like pasta and chili and pizza and my cereal and donuts. I don't do that, but I add it to a lot of things. Not those things, but add it to a lot of things. A lot of us like to do that. We like to add spice to our food, don't we? A little dash here, a little bit there to spice it up. A lot of people view becoming a Christian like adding a little spice to their life. A little different belief here, a little different belief here, a little more effort there to stop lying, a little more effort there to stop lusting, a little more here like adding a little sriracha. When becoming a Christian isn't just adding a little bit of doctrine or good works to your old life, the old you. You are a new creation, Paul says. It's, it's a whole new you. He creates a new you from the inside out. It's not just believing one tiny little more thing or, or trying harder over here or there. And Paul, has to, Paul says you have to grasp that. You've been given a new heart, a, a new self. And Jesus now lives in you. That's pretty radical. I don't always feel like that, do you? Like a new creature? But that's the idea. That's who you are. That's your position. A new creature with a new heart. The old you has been done away with. And, and we live now into that new self who God is making us into. What we actually already are. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones put this. When we, he's talking about our spiritual growth and we are. How does it happen? He says the New Testament method and way of sanctification, that's your growth, in holiness, is to get us to realize our position and standing and to act in accordingly. In other words, be what you actually already are. You are a new creature. 
in Christ if you've trusted him. There it is again. Position, belief, behavior. Because the whole New Testament is trying to get you to see who you are in Jesus and then now live accordingly out of that. You're a new creature and a child of God, so what do we do then? The old's off. We put on the new. We put on the new self through renewing our minds. That's the next point in your outline there. We put on the new self through renewing our minds. Becoming the likeness of God, verse 24 says. The old was put off in this marvelous uh, recreation, you might want to say, of you or conversion that God did, not you. God did that. He caused you to be born again. But the new self, that was done, the old self put away. That's done. When you're born again, when you trust Jesus, when you turn from sin and embrace him in faith, that old self is done away with. But the new self, we have to constantly be renewing our minds in Jesus. We've got to be eager, remember? This passage said eager last week. Cultivate, pursue, crave. I like how one pastor described it. He says that all of us at one time or another have looked at our faith in Jesus like, and the Christian life, kind of like a thermostat. You know what those are. You have it in your house. You, you, you kind of set your thermostat, you know, and you kind of, there it is, you know. And we've looked at our faith kind of like that thermostat. You know, I set it. I have Jesus. It, it, I've set my dial to Jesus. I'm good. Uh, and my thermostat's set. And, you know, it's automatic, a thermostat, isn't it? What happens with a thermostat? It gets too hot in the room, and the thermostat knows, and it tells the AC to kind of just, just kind of kick on and, and act automatically. You don't need to do anything, do you? You set it. It's there. You don't even have to touch it and look at it. You don't even think about it. It gets too hot, it'll kick on. It does the same when it gets too cold, right? It, it will come on, and it'll just regulate things on its own and bring things at, back to normal automatically. I don't even have to think about it. There's a tendency sometimes for us to think, I, I, you know, my faith, my Christian life, it, it'll kick in when things get tough, like that thermostat. Hey, it's set. I don't need to bother with it or think about it. Our growth, our renewal, uh, our Christian life and faith is, is never something that just happens automatically, this renewal. It's not magic, this idea of renewal. It's not like a thermostat, actually. When you come to that hard situation, the hope is that you've already been renewing, been living in, been thinking Christ, been growing in Him in community. So that when it happens, when the heat goes up, life gets hard, you don't let yourself be controlled by it. You look at it and you say, okay, I know what's happening. I was preparing for you suffering. I knew you were going to be coming. I'm ready for you. I'm not who you say I am. This is who I am in God. This is who Jesus is. I'm going to live out of that. There it is again. Position, belief, behavior. And that's something we have to keep renewing and putting on every day. It's not a thermostat. We've got to live in it, Paul says. So what does it look like then when we're living this? What's the way, the path, what's the holiness, the pursuit, the thing that Jesus is turning us into? Here it is, our final, our life together. It's to produce holy fruit, but that's that holy fruit that's pursued through relationships. We're going to quickly look, as I said, 
not necessarily a passage or study of all of Ephesians, but a, a series using these Ephesian passages for this theme of life together. We're going to quickly fly over some of these as we finish up. These examples now of what our life is to look like. And as we look at these, I want us to realize why our life together is so important. Why the people next to you in this room are so important. And why relationships in general are so important. Because all these holy qualities we're going to look at. God wants to work in us. They're exercised through relationships. You have to have relationships to be, have these happen. Holiness doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It has to be lived out amongst people. Well, like different clothing that different people put on, from, uh, you know, uh, the clothing from a farmer to an accountant to a sports player to a prisoner, right? We put on different things different pieces of clothing for different roles. What are we supposed to put on as Christians? Have you ever thought about that? What are you supposed to wear? Well, it's holiness, but holiness isn't just, goodness isn't just the absence of sin, the absence of doing bad things. It's also living out the positive things. So we put off one thing, we put on another. Let's look at a bunch of those real quick. Here's the first one. Let's see them. Lies to truth is the first one. Lies to truth is the first one Paul mentions as we transition into verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, speak the truth, he says. So not only does God ask us to put off lying, he asks us to be a people who speak the truth. Truth about Jesus, truth about sin, truth about eternity, truth about life, to be a trustworthy, truthful person with each other, even if it's hard sometimes. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said from Life Together. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to sin. You know what he's saying there? It's just too hard. It's too awkward. It's too hard to talk about. I don't even want to address it. He says that's actually cruelty. It's actually cruel to know, to have the gospel in your heart, to know someone's living in sin and stuck in it and say, it's just, it's too hard. He calls that cruelty. He said, nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Isn't that hard? That is one of the most challenging things that we're called to do in church, in our life together. But think about it. Here and outside these walls, if we have the gospel and somebody's on a train track and the train is barreling down at them, is it kind to not say anything? It's not. It's actually the opposite. He calls it very cruel. We're to be a people that are willing to speak the truth with our neighbor. Why? We're one body, verse 25 says. Here's the second one. Temper to righteous anger. So lies the truth. Here's the second one. Temper to righteous anger. Scripture teaches there are two types of anger. Unrighteous anger. We all struggle with. We all know the seed is there in our heart. Anger that is uh, self-seeking or destructive or, or, or selfish. And with that anger says, Paul knows it's going to be there, but he says, don't sin. I, I know you're going to get angry, but don't sin. Don't nurse it. Don't let the sun go down on it. Don't hold on to it. Why? The perfect time the enemy wants to work. Nursed anger, uh, harbored anger, nothing more dividing than that. And this, passage, this is all about unity. But Paul says, don't 
give the devil that opportunity. That's the sinful kind of anger. Unrighteous anger is anger that we just kind of talked about, uh, is, is annoyed at sin, confronts sin, doesn't compromise, is indignant even, not passive towards evil in the world. It's the type of anger that we struggle with, that we maybe even need more of. If God hates sin, on some level, shouldn't we too? In ourselves and in others? It's the difference between anger and righteous anger. Here's our third one, theft to work. What's this clothing look like? Theft to work. Not only are we not to be the type of person who would steal, but he goes so far as to say the positive, be a hard worker. Be somebody who provides and cares and, and works hard enough to have an abundance to share with others and help those in need. See, it's not just the absence of the negative. It's the positive. It makes me think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard it say this, but I say even this. And that's what Paul is doing here for us. Here's our next one. Evil words, we're going to call it to gospel fluency. Let's read this one. Evil words to gospel fluency. Take a look at verse 29 with me. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul's saying, words matter. What comes out of your mouth matters. What we say matters. It's an exercise we've done with our kids before, but really I need it more than them, is when they're in the middle of a real time of kind of bitterness, to think how many phrases in a row that came out of your mouth were something that were kind of negative and not something kind of positive. You ever done that with yourself? You're like, wow, I'm on a string of like 20. Everything coming out of my mouth is like a bitterness or a a complaint. I encourage you to do that with yourself, to be aware, to think about that. And it's sometimes surprising, actually, that, oh, that was bitter. Oh, that was kind of grumbly. Oh, that was kind of nasty. It, it can be surprising. And Paul says, not evil words, but grace words, gospel words. You might call it gospel fluency. It's the title of a book. We're going to see a quote in a minute. What do I mean by that? I mean that we need to bring in to every area of life what Paul started with at the beginning, learn, think, hear Jesus. Who is he? What has he done for me? Who am I in light of him? And how can I respond in anger when I've been saved by grace alone? When I've been given a storehouse of blessing and I'm kind of bitter and angry because this one thing didn't work out. Become so versed in that that you could say we're fluent in it. That's just how we talk as a culture, as a people. That's just who we are. He, he gives us an example of that here. We'll see it in a minute. But here's that quote. He's, uh, Jeff Vanderstel from his book, Gospel Fluence. He said, Jesus is the true and better human, and everything in this life is better if Jesus is brought into it. Everything. Your finances, your anger, your relationships, your marriage, your job. He's done everything better. He can make everything better. And the truths about who he is and what he's done when applied to our lives are always a better answer than anything else. Do you believe that? 
There's good news and great help for absolutely everything in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our next one's a great example of that, bitterness to kindness. Bitterness to kindness. You see how Paul says in verse 31? He says, let all this bitterness, let all this wrath, let all this anger be put away, but be kind, tender, and forgiving. Does he stop right there? Imagine if he just stopped there. He says, don't do that. Just try harder. That's great news. That works all the time with our kids, doesn't it? He says, don't be that way. Don't be angry. Don't be bitter. He doesn't stop there. He uses gospel fluency. How do you become kinder, more tender, more forgiving? What does he say? As Christ forgave you. There it is. Do you want to become a more forgiving person that doesn't get angry and bitter, Paul's saying here? You have to go back and say, who am I? How much have I been forgiven of? And let that melt your heart. That's gospel fluency. That's a perfect example of it right there. Don't just try harder. Yes, yes, we're part of it. We exercise our will. Yes, we need to go back to how much we've been forgiven. But he says, no, go back. What's your position? There it is. Position what you believe, and let that drive your behavior. It's a perfect example. He says it later. He says, do you want to be more loving? Do you want to be, be more loving? Look at verse 2 and walk of chapter 5 and walk in love. Just do it. Does he stop there? No. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He says, do you want to be more loving? Don't just try harder. Remember how much you're loved already and how secure that love is. Remember it. While we were still sinners, Christ loved us, died for us. And let that soften you into loving others. There it is. Gospel fluency in our last couple. Here's the last one we put off today. Here's our last one. Selfish sex to grateful sex. We're hitting on this one briefly today because we're going to spend the next few weeks. At the end, you'll hear what our next series is going to be. I'll pique your curiosity, maybe. Um, but selfish sex to grateful sex. Paul closes this little section here in verses 3 and 4 by talking about sexual immorality. And he covers everything, really. <laughs> All activity outside of marriage in, the terms of sexual in these two terms, sexual activity and impurity. He calls it sin. And he adds to that covetousness. Isn't that kind of weird? And here's why I think he does that. Because sexual sin is selfish sin. Let me say that again. Sexual sin is selfish sin. When I was a pastor to college students, um, we talked about sex a lot. Go figure. It just came up. It was one of those things that came up. And we would often talk about it. And the angle I would take with them was this. If you desire to have sex outside of marriage with someone, and you use the reason it's because you love them, your actions actually show the exact opposite. Because loving someone means wanting their best, doesn't it? Loving someone means wanting their best and, and pointing them to Jesus and pointing them to God. But when you ask them to sin in the name of love, what is that? That's not love. That's using someone for your own gratification. We attach love to it. It's actually the very opposite of the definition of love. 
It's self-serving rather than self-sacrifice. That's the angle I would take with him. And a lot of, oh, now that makes sense. That actually makes sense. It's actually, it can never be loving outside of the proper place God designed it to happen. And that, for them, clicked. It's the very opposite of love. And Paul goes so far, the clothes that you put on, Christian, not just sexual activity, but he says, you really shouldn't even joke crudely about it. Or even he goes so far as they really think about this. And it's not because, here's, here's, here's the thing, it's not because Christians have a negative view of sex, but such a high view. That's why. A high and a holy and a good view of sex in its proper context of marriage. It's God's good gift. And any time it takes place outside of that, it's cheapened and used for selfish gratification, Paul says. So what's the antidote? It's an odd one. Be thankful. That's the antidote, he says, to sexual sin. Be thankful. It seems like a strange antidote for sexual sin and sexual jokes and and crudeness, but maybe not, because as we just said, sexual sin is selfish sin. And so the antidote maybe just is thankfulness to God, or maybe even sex. And sex in its proper context when it's used for the goodness of God. We're to be thankful for all good gifts, and one of those being sex. And so Paul says, are you struggling? Be thankful for sex in its proper context. Thankfulness to God. As I said, we're briefly touching on that one. We will come back to that one in the coming weeks. What are we getting at here? Here's the kind of final takeaway. It's going back to it. Who are you? Who are we in this life together? We're a gospel people purchased and bought by the blood of Jesus and secure in him. That's your position. And that drives and informs what we believe about God and us and what he expects of us. And when we put all those together and live in that and put it on daily, you'll see change in your life. Real gospel-fueled, grace-driven transformation. And that's what Paul wants for us. Let's pray. Jesus, I know this is a lot for us today. It's hard to think through that we're new creatures when there are many days I feel like my old self. But I pray for us that on those days we would say, that's not my position. What do I know to be true? Who am I as a child of God? I'm purchased and bought and loved more than I ever knew. Let us live out of that. Let us put on Jesus and live in him and share him together. And out of what we know to be true, as we've been forgiven, so forgive. As we've been loved, so love. May we see real transformation in our hearts and lives, knowing we're saved by grace alone and loved by grace alone. Do that in your people. Spirit, we ask, let us not make you sad with our sin, as Paul said in this passage. Let us give you joy as you reside in our hearts. In Jesus' name.